Um, I don't know if you've noticed or not uh, lately, and it may be precisely because your DVR recording schedule is jacked up, but there's a lot of basketball on. Uh, Anybody with me on this? Uh, March Madness is upon us, um, and uh, it is phenomenal. It is uh, an inordinate amount of TV watching at my house, if I can just confess, from like the middle of March until the first week, full, full weekend of April, which is Masters weekend, there's an inordinate amount of TV watching on at my house. Basketball is just ruling, that kind of thing. I think my wife the other day flipped over to watch news for a minute, and there might have been a saying that went something like, I am going to turn it back, okay? I mean, it was something like that. So one of the great stories, it's March Madness, right? And one of the great stories uh, coming out of it, the very first time a one seed lost to a 16 seed and UVA just out and blew up all of our brackets. There's no perfect bracket left out of the almost 20 million that were uh, uh, given to ESPN. No perfect bracket left. Um, One of the other great stories that came out of it was Loyola of Chicago. Anybody been tracking Loyola of Chicago? An 11 seed um, takes out Miami that came out out of the ACC tournament just smoking hot, and they they took them down, uh, and then uh, they go on uh, to beat Tennessee, uh, and then they uh, they go on to beat Nevada, and all three of those first games, uh, the the combined points by which they won was four. <laughs> so they had. Uh, a, a last second shot from the top of the key. They had a last second three-pointer in the corner and a last second kind of falling down. Oh my gosh, I hope it goes in shot from the elbow and it went in. And, uh, and, and then last night they put a thumping on K-State, beat them by 12 uh, just to give themselves some breathing room, I guess. And now an 11 seed Loyola of Chicago is in the final four. Pretty awesome. One of the great things that has come out of that is the story uh, about Sister Jean. Has anybody followed this? Anybody follow Sister Jean at all? The nun here, um, she's 98 years old. She's the team chaplain and also, as they said, the advanced scout. (laughs) So no kidding, she emails the team, hey, I was watching, and I think you need to watch for da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, she started uh, the first game of the tournament. She started the devotional, finished the devotional, said amen, and then looked at one of the players and said, and remember to box out number 23, okay? <laughs> She's 98 years old and awesome. And apparently of the house of Gryffindor there, I just see the thing <laughs> happening there, which is pretty awesome. She's 98. Uh, by the way, she's sporting a pair of team-provided uh, uh, um, custom Nike tennis shoes that say Sister Jean on the heels back here. Really, really cool. Uh, uh, anyway, so, I mean, you got all this, and, and uh, this is how you know uh, you've hit the, like, the big time, is that now they're pre-ordering these. You can get your own Sister Jean bobblehead. I mean, you're the stuff. If you've got a bobblehead, you are the stuff, right? And, and indeed, she is, uh, she's been doing interviews and all this kind of thing. Uh, no, this is the kind of person she is. Not only does she look at one of the players and say, don't forget to box out number 23, but uh, somebody sticks a microphone in her face, which just ought to, like, at 98 and a nun, like, if you stick a microphone in her face, she has absolutely nothing to lose, Right? And so this reporter asked, said, hey, what do you think about all this uh, national fame and being a national star? She said, well, it's actually international now. 
Another reporter, beautiful. Another reporter, another microphone, different time. Hey, you know, you've been doing all these interviews and stuff. What do you think about uh, being on these shows? She says, I haven't watched them. No, you haven't watched the shows? No, son, I've been making them. 98-year-old nun for the win. Uh, nobody, that, here's the crazy thing. I mean, for, you know, for, forget March, right? Nobody in November, certainly not in March, but nobody in November thinks that Sister Jean, the chaplain of the Loyola Chicago basketball team, is going to be like the darling of the tournament, right? I mean, nobody predicts that. I say that um, to just simply point this out. Um, no one can predict where you will end based upon where you started from. And that's where we find ourselves. True of Loyola, 11 seed, now in the final four. True of Sister Jean, nun, chaplain, bobblehead. I mean, like, all of, true of the church and true of Peter and John. We pick the story up from chapter 3. They healed a guy, uh, declared uh, the witness of Jesus in the temple, got arrested, spent a night in jail, had to go before the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, declared the witness of Jesus to the Sanhedrin, and at no point where they started did they think that they would end up where they ended up. And so we get to pick up, now that they've ended... We get to pick up kind of at the, at the, at the story part um, where they've been released, and now what do they do? Now what happens? This is uh, chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 30, uh, excuse me, 23. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends... And just pause there. Not like, not like to their social circle. Everybody gets that, right? They went to the church... They went to those followers of Jesus who were camped with them, so to speak. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And they, as a reminder, they said, don't teach again in the name of Jesus. And they're like, look, whether or not it's right for us to obey uh, God instead of you, you'll have to make that call. As for us, we can't help but see and say what we've heard. Um, uh, So uh, just... They did that. Can we just, before we run away from that verse real quick, I, I love this. Peter and John, out of jail, could have gone, held a press conference, could have uh, posted a bunch of stuff on Facebook, could have done any number of things, except what did they do? They turned to the church. They went to the church. Why? Because the church ought to be the place, folks, where when you hit the highest of highs, night in jail, before the Sanhedrin, all of that kind of stuff, and you're just flying sky high, you ought to come to a place, call the church, with the people of God, call the church, and people ought to say, that is awesome, and just keep going with you, right? And just give you turbo boost. And when you come in, and man, you're in the lowest of lows, and I cannot make it another step. The church ought to be the place where you come. People grab a hold of you and keep you moving. God, my marriage is a, my kid, oh, the job, oh, the finance, oh. They grab a hold of you and they keep you moving. And if you come to church and you kind of come limping in because of something that's happened to you, church ought to be the place where people open their arms as wide as they possibly can and embrace you for all that you are, the good, the bad, the hurt, the problems, the struggle. The... 
one of the houses that is being worked on right now, post-Harvey. My son, my oldest and I, I think we're the first ones over there. Um, we got this house pretty late in the process. Miss Alberta is her name. Sweet, 83-year-old lady, widow lady. I walked in, introduced myself. Hey, my name's Trent. I'm the pastor at Heritage Park. She says to me, come here. Okay. So I come over, just wraps me up in that sweet little old lady hug. She's about, you know, three and a half feet tall or whatever. She just, just, she looks at my oldest. She goes, come here. Same thing. Church ought to be that kind of place. There's a reason why when Peter and John got out of jail, they went to their friends. They went to the church. Why did they turn to the church? Because church should be that kind of place. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, Weeping with those who weep and holding on to the people who come limping in. That ought to be church, folks. If, they, if you can't turn to the church in those kind of moments, where else are you going to turn? Verse 30, excuse me, I keep saying 30. It's 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, and so on. So, so the, Peter and John, they turned to the church, and what did the church do? They turned to prayer. That's such a great thing for you and I to hold on to. Um, instead of posting, instead of blogging, instead of any number of other things, let's turn to prayer first. Before we do anything else, before we call a news station, before we put out a press release, before we do anything, before we start a movement, before we have a moment, let's turn to prayer. They turn to church, church turned to prayer, and here's what they said. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles raise the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Just pause here for a second. Why did Peter and John turn to the church? And why did the church turn to prayer? Because they knew God. Man, they knew God. And what did they know to be true of God? It says first, he's the sovereign Lord. The word that's used there is the word from the Greek, D-E-S-P-O-T-A-S. D-E-S-P-O-T, anybody? Somebody? Despot, thank you so much. They're like, oh, shit. Despot, you and I, we use that in kind of a negative term, the um, original language, the place where it came from. It just means an unchallenged ruler with absolute authority. Isn't it good to have a God who's an unchallenged ruler with absolute authority? He's uncontrollable, folks. We don't get to manipulate. He's the sovereign Lord. And he says he's the creator. They knew him to be that. And then they knew him to be the creator. They knew God to be the creator who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In other words, he made it all. He owns it all. And then he speaks through his people, through his word, and his word shapes the perspective and how they respond. This is verse 25. Um, who through the mouth of, your, uh, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against 
his anointed. And then they take that passage and they apply it to this moment that they're in. Verse 27, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So you have gathered people together against the anointed. You have gathered people together against the anointed one, Jesus. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the, in theory, the Jewish ruler and the Gentile ruler, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, Jews and Gentiles. And then listen to verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Don't miss that. All the things that were happening in Jerusalem, all the stuff that went crazy, all the things that went sideways, all the stuff that said, oh man, these people, oh God, they, oh, I can't believe they, oh, what? It all happened according to the plan of God that he had predestined for it to take place to accomplish exactly what he wanted. They thought that if they killed Jesus, that'll be the end of it. God's like, you killed Jesus, that's the start of it. You, you, you take nails and you pierce the Son of God and he bleeds and you need to know you are unleashing something on the earth that will not be crushed ever. You think, but I'm telling you, if there's not a sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth and speaks through his people to the people of God, and they have no hope, as it stands, the Gentiles, the Jews, the leaders, they were raging against God. A raid, if you will, against God. And what kind of foolishness is it? What kind of dummy is it who lines himself up, who lines herself up, who gives their allegiance to someone who's against the Lord and against his anointed one? And the answer is, every one of us does this. We think that we're going to just have a moment where it's going to be okay. And not, it is not okay. Like in this particular instance, they were thinking that they were going to do one thing and they ended up doing something else altogether. And the worst part is the, the deceit, the self-deceit. They thought they were winning by killing Jesus. And what they didn't know was that God himself was winning when they did. They were raging, it says. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? They were raging because, verse 28 God was doing exactly what his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. They were raging because of what God had done. They were raging because of what God had done. That, that prompts a question in me. Here's a question. What was it that God did? I mean, that, that's an important thing. It's an important thing to think about on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's got one thing on his mind, and that's what he's going to accomplish on Friday. What did God do? Why were the Gentiles and the, and the rulers, why were they raging? They were raging because of what God had done. Well, what did he do? These, it's, it's, it, what you're about to encounter is almost a tour de force of New Testament teaching, okay? So there's a lot that's about to pop up on the screen. Just hang in there with me. The very first thing he did that set them to raging was he provided a sacrifice. Because of what he was raging, they were raging because of what God had done. And he, what he had done is he had provided a sacrifice. That's how the peoples relate to God. They related to God on the basis of sacrifice. 
I mean, the Old Testament, you had all sorts of sacrifices. There were sacrifices of thanksgiving. There were sacrifices for sin. There were sacrifices for just kind of everything um, else that was going on. There were moments where you did this and sacrificed that. There were moments there was animals, moments where it was other things. There was, it was always relating to God on the basis of sacrifice. In light of him being the sovereign Lord, in light of him being the creator, in light of him being the one who speaks to his people, our response is one of sacrifice. And God steps in through Jesus and says, I now am providing the sacrifice. You don't have to provide the sacrifice. I am doing so. This is John chapter 10. Listen to what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. When the Roman, when the Jews and the, and the leaders of the day conspired against Jesus and the Roman executioners drove nails through the wrists and through the feet of the Son of God, what you need to know, what Jesus was saying then, they were simply doing it because Jesus was allowing them to do it. I lay it down of my own accord. It's a sacrifice. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And he did. That's what we get to celebrate next week. This charge I have received from my father. That's why they were raging. This is all part of the plan that God had predestined to take place. And he was, God himself was providing a sacrifice. Second thing that he uh, does, he provides a sacrifice and he pays um, for sin. He provided a sacrifice and he paid for sin. Previously, uh, you had to have the blood of bulls and goats and this kind of stuff that was um, out there. But no, I mean, even the Bible itself says those things, they don't, they don't really pay for sin. And so Romans chapter 3 um, says it this way. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That's an important word. We'll come back to it in a second. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. How? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now that's a lot. That's a mouthful right there. Can just time out on this? So Adam and Abraham and Moses and um, all of these other hooligans in the Old Testament, right? The, even the sacrificial system, even all of those things, it, it says that the blood of bulls and goats can't really take away sin. So in some important way, the sin that even they sacrificed for wasn't fully atoned for. And it looked like God was just letting them, he was just letting them get away with that stuff. All of these, Adam and, and Eve and, and Moses, the, the murderer, and Abraham, the faithless one who lied about all sorts of stuff, David, the adulterer, and all of this kind of stuff, all of their sins in the past were getting paid for, and they were going to get paid for in one place, and where was that going to be? At the cross. They thought, oh, oh he, was, he had swept over, they had passed over, it says, those former sins. No, 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 he was going to pay for those sins at the cross in a one-time for all-time payment. You and I, we're on the far side of the cross over there. We're looking back going, oh yeah, thank you, Jesus, that your mercy is more. These folks, they were looking forward to it for God to pay for sin one time for all time. What that means for you and for me is this. Um, sin is a big deal to God. If he was going to put forward his own son as the sacrifice, as the propitiation, the one who would pay for sins, if he's going to do that, there's no small sin, folks. Nothing. It shows God's righteousness. He didn't sweep sin under the rug. He didn't say, hey, we'll do better next time. He, 
He sacrificed his son to pay for sin. And if that were the end of the story, all would be right in the world, but that's not even the end of the story. It just gets better for you and for me. Not only did he provide a sacrifice and pay for sin, but he also purchased forgiveness for you and for me. Hello, England team, again. He purchased forgiveness for you and for me. So now, it's not just that we are in a world that where, where things are, the, the, the justice of God has been met, but now you and I, we also get a chance. We also get a chance to receive the forgiveness that he has for us. And so Colossians chapter 2 says it this way. Can we get Colossians 2 up there? Thanks. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's you and me, God made alive together with Jesus. How did he do that? By forgiving all of our trespasses. How many? How many? All of our trespasses. Think about that. All of our trespasses. How did he forgive us all of our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt, which um, was against us, that stood against us with all of its legal demands. And this he set aside, having nailed it to the cross. It's so important that you and I understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he became sin for us. And because he was the sacrifice that God provided that set and demonstrated this payment for sin was done, he also was then purchasing forgiveness for you and for me by becoming sin for us. He didn't forgive some of our sin, folks. He didn't forgive some of it. He didn't forgive the one that, you're, that you know about. He didn't forgive the one that somebody else knows about. He forgave all of our sin. The offer on the table for you and for me is to receive Jesus and be forgiven of not just the public sins or not just the private sins, but all of our sins. Not just the ones that we've committed in the past, not just the ones that we're struggling with right now, but every sin from the beginning of the moment up to the end of the moment where we step into eternity and meet him, he's going to forgive all of that. Why? Because we're so awesome, right? No, because his sacrifice is so amazing. He forgave us all of our sins. And he did that by taking that record of debt that stood against us. And yours is a mile long and mine is two miles long. Keep a list of all the things that we've messed up on. Every one of us. And we sang it just a second ago. Our sins, they fill up reams of paper. But his mercy is more. He didn't just forgive some of them. He forgave all of our sins. He purchased forgiveness for you and for me. Um, Fourthly, what, what did God do? Provided a sacrifice, he paid for our sin, he purchased forgiveness, and he demonstrated his love for you and for me. I don't know if you know this or not, but sometimes we have questions about how God actually interacts with us. Like we don't know this, uh, maybe you haven't ever, yes, we've all experienced this moment where because we've messed up or because we're struggling or because it's just we're sleepless and you know our world's upside down, we struggle with this question, does God really love me? Not the me I pretend to be, not the me I wish I was, but does he really love me? And 1 John 4 verse 10 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, I didn't wake up one day and decide, hey, you know what, today, I'm just going to love God. That's... No, no, no. But that he loved us. He came to us first. 
He initiated. He pursued us first. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, there's our word again, to be the propitiation for our sin. Not only did he um, uh, uh, um, provide for us the payment for sin, but he also purchased for us favor with God and forgiveness with God. So that you and I, no matter our emotional state, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter the circumstances happening, which all, those are all the things that kind of uh, tip the scales for us and make us wonder, God, have you left us? Have you, have you, do you remember where I am? Do you love me still? Do, is there anything in my life that, that is somehow causing you to just turn your back and go, oh, I give up? One time for all time, he answered the question, does God love you? And the answer is a very cross-centered Yes. So you survey the landscape of history. You find somebody who loved you as you are before you were, and you will find Jesus answering the question, does God love me? And the answer is yes. Lastly, and this is one of my favorite parts as of late, something burning in my heart. What has God done Not only did he demonstrate his love for us, but he reconciled us to himself. The judge didn't just bang the gavel and say, I declare you right. But the father's heart leaped toward us. And he reconciled us. He brought us into right relationship with him. The fracture, the distance, the things that were separated have now been connected and brought near. So 2 Corinthians 5 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that Christ, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to themselves, not counting their trespasses against them. It wasn't just that he declared us right before him. He also reached out in love and drew us into relationship. That's what God was doing. That's why people were all messed up and raging against this. That's why we can say with confidence, with confidence, hey, people rage. And they rage because of what God is doing. But man, there is a God who loves us, who has purchased forgiveness for us, and who has drawn us into relationship with him. This is what God has done. The second um, thing, just quickly, because of all of that, that's just... That's so crucial. The second part of it um, falls out starting in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign the wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God. With boldness. So we talked about the rage, and now we're talking about the shaking. Why was the place shaking? It was shaking because of what God was doing. The physical environment, if you will, could not handle the spiritual dynamic at work. And what was that dynamic? God was hearing their prayers, and he was answering them. What did they pray? First thing they prayed, God, keep an eye on them. I love that. Not, God, would you smite them? Or, God, if you've got an extra lightning bolt? Or, God, God whatever... God, make sure that they lose the next election. I mean, however it goes, just keep watch over them. You got anybody like that in your life? Hey, God, just, just keep an eye on them for me. Keep an eye on them. Keep watch over them. 
because of who he is, they knew to pray and they knew that they could trust God with them. And secondly, he, answered, he heard the prayer and answered the prayer, not only to keep watch, but also to supply boldness for them. Look at what it says at the end of verse 29. Grant your service to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Hey, if I just gotten out of jail and I met with the church and we started to pray, I'm thinking, hey, God, keep us safe. Keep us secure. Please don't let them find us. I mean, all of that stuff is going in my mind. Anybody with me on that? They didn't pray for comfort. They didn't pray for security. They didn't pray for safety. They didn't even pray for wisdom. God, help us to know how to live this. They prayed for boldness. Hey, Lord, out of all the things we need right now, it's boldness. Can we just be, just parentheses, boldness is not an argumentative approach to life. I'm just being bold. No, 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 no. You're just being rude and calling it boldness. It's not argumentative. Boldness, biblically, is this kind of a winsome witness to who Jesus is. People should be attracted to him, not repelled, based upon how you witness for him. God, please supply boldness. And lastly, in verse 30, God, please grab their attention. While you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Keep doing, God, the kinds of things that you do to make the world notice you. Sometimes we want the world to notice us. They prayed, God, help do the things that, do, that you do to keep their attention on you. God is too good of a God and too loving a Father to let great power destroy the people that He loves. So He doesn't entrust great power to prideful people. He entrusts great power to humble people. So what, what kind of people do we want to be? Humble people. God, keep watch on the folks around me that need watching. God, supply boldness. and God, grab their attention in some way that makes sense to them. And it says, I love it. Verse 31, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He came upon them in this fresh way. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Why? Because there were people out there who needed to hear the word of God. And it came through a bold people. So we're going to pray. We've been praying for friends and family, neighbors who are lost. And we're going to take this moment right now to pray for them. In light of all of that boldness stuff, we're going to take this moment right now. So let's, if you need to close up or fold up or whatever, do that and then get still for a minute. And I want to invite you to put that person or those people before the throne of God this morning. If you've been a part of this with us for the several weeks now, just track along. Maybe you're praying for the same people. Maybe you're praying for different folks. You just set them before the throne this morning. And so, Father, here we are lifting these names up to you. We're putting faces before you. There are families that we're praying for. There are individuals that we're praying for. God, these are people that we care about. But these are people that you sent Jesus to die for. And so we pray on the basis of that. That you would do your work in them in order that their eyes could see what's true and what's real. You would do your work in them that darkness would be replaced with light and death would be replaced with life. 
Holy Spirit, would you pull the veil back from them? Would you work in their hearts and so regenerate them that the most natural thing that they could do is turn to you in faith? God, create in them a longing and a hunger for forgiveness and life and freedom that you offer. And Lord, just as you sent your people out with boldness, so now we're asking for us collectively here. You would send us out with boldness and cause opportunities and doors to open. Give us moments where we can bear witness boldly to the things that you have done in Jesus for them. Use us, God, as your instruments, just like you use Peter and John, just like you use the rest of the church. Fill us with your spirit afresh this morning and then send us out with boldness. We ask this in Christ's name. Let's stand together and sing. If there's something that we can pray with you about, please make your way to the back. If you're here this morning and you need to know about the forgiveness that comes in Jesus and the life and freedom that he offers, please come back there. I would love to have a conversation with you. Let's sing together.